This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. I'd like to welcome everyone to this briefing by the Rand Corporation on transportation finance issues. Um, the Rand Corporation, for the few of you who might not know what it is, is a not for profit public policy research organization, uh, existed for over 60 years, and it focuses on a wide range of public policy issues, including defense, but also education and healthcare, uh, and in the case that we're talking about today, transportation policy. Uh, my name is Martin Wax. I'm the director of the Transportation, Space, and Technology Program uh, of the RAND Corporation, and we have been um, involved in transportation work since the 1960s, when Rand published the uh, book that I used as, as a textbook as, in graduate school called The Urban Transportation Problem, which remains, I think, one of the landmarks in transportation scholarship. But in the last year or two, we, we have been really expanding our work in transportation, and what we're going to hear about today uh, represents our, our recent work. Um, in addition to a brief introduction that I'm going to uh, present, uh, we're also going to hear from Paul Sorensen, uh, who's immediately to my right, and I guess to your left, as left of me when you look at him. Um, and uh, Paul is the uh, associate director of the Transportation, Space, and Technology Group, but he's also the principal investigator in the transportation finance work uh, that, that we have been doing. Uh, Paul has a doctorate uh, in quantitative geography from University of California at Santa Barbara and a master's degree in urban planning from UCLA. And then afterward, we'll, we will uh, also hear um, from two uh, members of staff of, uh, of, of uh, both houses and um, they will comment on, on what we've said. Uh, and the two will be Paul Schmidt, a le legislative assistant for U.S. Senator Tom Carper of Delaware who serves on the Senate Finance Committee and the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. And Paul handles transportation policy for Senator Carper, including the upcoming discussions about reauthorization. And Jim Tymon, who's the Republican Staff Director of the Highways and Transit Subcommittee of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And Mr. Tymon's responsibilities include highway policy, highway finance, pipeline safety issues, um, and he's been with the TNI committee since 2002. So I'm going to present a little bit of an overview, uh, hopefully brief enough to give uh, Paul Sorensen enough time to, to present more fully our recent research results on vehicle miles of travel fees. And uh, to put that in context, I'm going to talk about surface transportation finance and the transition period or the challenges of the current situation uh, as we approach reauthorization. Um, this, as, as everyone, I think, in this room probably knows, uh, this, the surface transportation bill that was Safety Lou uh, expired September 30th, 2009. It's been extended several times, the latest short-term extension through the end of the current uh, calendar year. Um, concern about reauthorization is perhaps to some extent overshadowed by recession, by, by concern for the stimulus package, by the health care debate that continues, uh, by climate change bills. Uh, and so it's not 
on the front page of the newspapers that I read, but in my, wor in my professional world, it's a very important issue. Uh, the most critical issue is that the federal transportation revenue stream is failing. The, the motor fuel tax, which has been the basis of federal finance and transportation, is losing some of its clout. The transportation community, state DOTs, MPOs, shippers, carriers, academics, all agree that we're in a sense, in, in a situation that actually could be called a crisis, and that fundamental changes in the way we finance transportation should be on the table. Saying that the national transportation program is in fiscal crisis, by that I mean that we're unable to fund standard maintenance, much less system expansion or environmental improvements. The quality of the system, the physical condition of the system is deteriorating because of lack of upkeep. For the first time since, the, since uh, 1930, less than half of state funding, uh, state funding is from user fees. And that may bode uh, something about what we're gonna see happening soon in, at the federal level. States are borrowing to pay for maintenance and operations. One would think that they might, it might be justified on a continuing basis to borrow for capital investments, but states are actually now borrowing and paying off bonds just to, uh, for, for maintenance and operations. The federal trust fund is operating at a deficit, and many in Congress and the administration are opposing increases in the federal motor fuel taxes. So when you put all of those things together, we feel confident in referring to it as a crisis. The uh, Federal Highway Trust Fund is rapidly falling into deficit, and I've seen 15 or 20 different versions of this slide, but the important point is, I think, uh, pretty obvious. So the issues facing Congress now are um, the motor fuel taxes as user, uh, as user fees have worked really well for almost a century, certainly a century at the state level, and maybe it's an exaggeration to say a century at the federal level since it goes back to about 1930. Um, the general fund support for transportation could be seen as a fallback position. If we don't expand or renew or extend user fees, there is always general funding, but there are a variety of reasons why many in the field of transportation would prefer to see user fees continue as the basis. And technology is now available for more modern options in assessing user fees. Some call them VMT fees or open road tolling. There are a variety of different options, but they are uh, now available to us in ways that they weren't just as recently as the last reauthorization. So none of the policy options for dealing with this crisis are ideal. Nobody wants to raise motor fuel taxes. Nobody wants to rely on general funds and nobody wants to impose tolls on roads that have been previously free. Um, but we have to do something because the revenue stream is failing. And on balance, as we evaluate, as, as those of us in the uh, research community evaluate these various options, it seems that there is a consensus, at least among technical experts, that the idea of charging for vehicle miles traveled in a direct way uh, is the most promising direction, though certainly everyone is open to discussing all of those options. So I want to say some things uh, to provide a little bit of background, especially to those who might be new to this subject matter. Uh, when did we, where did gas taxes come from and, and, and why do we have them and why are they failing? Well, it it's, dates back to the period about 1915 to 1925 when many states, and my own state of California was certainly one of them, uh, were, were spending so much on building new roads to connect cities 
as people bought automobiles for the very first time and goods began moving by truck, um, they, they were spending 40 and 50% of the state budget on capital investments in highways and they were falling farther behind. So there was a, a, a crisis, a, a financial crisis. Um, that's the time period during which we've had the fastest growth in travel that we've ever had, including you know, in re comparing it with recent decades. The rate of growth was much, much greater. So state legislatures, and especially Oregon, which was the first one to do this, considered what to do about it, and they preferred tolls paying directly uh, at the time and place of use. That there was a long history of using tolls on roads, privately operated roads and, uh, centuries ago, um, and it seemed the most natural thing to do. But to collect tolls, they had to put people in toll booths on a road system that had very uneven use, and that meant in some places putting people in toll booths 24 hours a day on lightly traveled roads, and it just wasn't cost effective. It, it meant co uh, expending a third, and sometimes cases 40% of the revenue on the collection process. So in Oregon, they invented the motor fuel tax. The idea was that every that it's like a toll, that it that it's a, a substitute for a direct toll. It's indirect. So every time you fill up your tank, you use more gas because you drive more. So the more you drive, the more you pay, and it seemed a reasonable approximation, a second best, and that's an important phrase to use, approximation of direct tolls. And the reason I used the phrase, obviously, is that now, the, now we can levy direct tolls. We can get past that, that particular objection. And motor fuels and various other car-related taxes, like tire taxes and battery taxes, uh, were adopted in, in most states very quickly as second best they weren't direct tolls, but they were practical and politically acceptable. And they, they've worked well for a century. Motor fuel taxes were enormously popular in the early years. People lobbied for them. They wanted them. Please tax me, uh, they said, because it was actually not a general use tax. It was not, it was not a, a, a general fund tax. It was a use tax. Um, and they were supported by a wide variety of constituencies, truckers, the auto clubs, um, and, and certainly auto manufacturers were very busy lobbying for, to get those roads out there uh, so that they could sell more cars. And the federal government introduced a motor fuel tax in 1932. Uh, it was adopted by every one of the then 48 states by 1940, and it was the fundamental mechanism by which we financed the interstate system in the mid-1950s. We raised the federal motor fuel tax and put it into a dedicated trust fund uh, for the sake of completing the interstate system. User fees in the United States became associated with this notion of trust funds. In, in most states, and not every state, I, I, I learned when I said, I once said every state, and I was told Alaska doesn't have one. Um, but in most states, um, it, be, it became associated with trust funds, setting the money aside. Since it's not a general tax, it doesn't go into the general fund. Uh, it goes into a separate fund, which can only be spent for transportation purposes. And, and that's true at the federal level as, as well, of course. Now, the elast we, we've been pretty elastic with our definition of what we're allowed to spend. So in many places, we do actually spend highway user funds on transit expenditures, but not on schools or hospitals or, or things of that sort. Um, this common uh, this uh, practice, which is in technical terms called hypothecation, linking a tax to a use is called hypothecation, um, is not common worldwide. There are some four or five, six other countries that do it 
And most countries take tax uh, motor fuels heavily, but put it into the general fund and, and pay for roads and transit out of the general fund. Well, um, motor fuel taxes are now becoming less and less viable. Um, the, there is opposition to raising the motor fuel tax, which is levied on a cents per gallon basis because it's collected at the um, distribution points and not at the gas stations. So we don't know what the eventual sales price will be when the tax is actually collected. So it's levied on a, on a number of cents per gallon rather than as a percentage of the sales price. Um, there's opposition to raising such taxes when the price of fuel is itself inherently high. There's a, a basic contradiction that the government is finding itself in that to me is the principal reason for leaving the gas tax behind over the long term at least and shifting to a direct user fee. And that is that we are trying to get people to be more fuel efficient. The, it, it's the purpose of, of many of our pending bills to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to rely less on imported petroleum. And yet for the transportation program to succeed, we need to sell more gasoline and more diesel fuel. And so there's an inherent uh, contradiction making the gasoline tax obsolete, given the other larger purposes of public policy. We're, we're promoting dramatic growth in fuel efficiency. If the Chevy Volt is really lives up to its billing and gets 200 miles per gallon equivalent, uh, what's it going to do to gas tax revenue? Uh, so ultimately, we want to replace petroleum-based fuels entirely, and that would mean we'd have to move to something other than the gas tax. Um, none of these policy options is ideal. We can, re we can, at least in the short run, renew and rejuvenate user fees as they exist today. We can raise the gas tax. Politically difficult, but it's, done, it's been done in at least some states. We can shift to tolls or direct VMT fees in the longer term, or we can revert to general fund financing. Those seem to be the main uh, options. Another one that's often discussed is that we could borrow money but borrowing money is not a revenue source. It, it requires us to pay interest and to repay the principal as well as the interest. So we would still have to do one of the other things in order to find the revenue in order to deal with the borrowing. So borrowing, you know, we can, it's like putting your finger in the dike. We, we could do that for a few years, but eventually and hopefully soon, we'll have to face up to the real problem. So options have been considered by three national bodies. Um, I was a member of the third one and, and several staff members of the Bipartisan Policy um, uh, uh, National Transportation Policy Project are here in the room. That, that was the third one to, to report. There were f uh, two others that were both um, provided for, funded in, in, the, um, in the last bill, in the last reauthorization, Safety Lou. And they all pretty much agree uh, with some principles that are summarized on this slide. Um, we, knew, we do need to enhance the revenue stream, they all agree, and raise the fuel taxes while fuel prices are high, not politically feasible, it, they pretty much all conclude. Finance the transportation program out of general funds, uh, and, and in some states we're doing a lot with sales taxes. In California we have sales taxes for transportation uh, in 28 counties. Um, it's not equitable to uh, levy charges on non-users and especially on the poor non-users, uh, and it, it fails the equity test. Um, while the gas tax itself is moderately regressive, these other taxes are more regressive. Um, re rejuvenate user financing 
using new technology and direct user charges, possibly applying electronic tolling and VMT fees, yes, that seems to be the most promising to all three of those bodies that, to which I referred. Most transportation experts agree that VMT or vehicle miles traveled charges are the most promising direction, though it's not politically um, uh, clear, it's not clear that politically it's superior in the minds of many who assess it to, to motor fuel taxes. Um, VMT fees will continue to produce revenue when vehicles are no longer powered by petroleum. That's one important reason for doing it. The second is that it actually comes closer to the goals for road user fees that, were, that existed and were stated as far back as 1920, they're more direct than the fuel tax. And in Oregon in particular, there was testimony in 1918 that if we could ever find some way of charging for vehicle miles traveled directly, we should abandon uh, the gas tax because that's a better way to do it. Well, it took a while, but we're, we're getting there. The technology is advancing and it's already in use throughout Europe. Um, four major tests have been done in the United States, including one that involved thousands of participants in Oregon where people paid a VMT fee at the time they drove to the gas pump in order to fill up their tank, but didn't pay the gas tax. Um, and the, this provides us with policy flexibility because the, you can levy a VMT fee by class of road, by time of day, by class of vehicle. Uh, not necessarily we would do that initially. We might just do a, a, a direct swap and just charge per VMT regardless of what road or, or whatever, but eventually we could have a much more subtle and differentiated charge. One of the most interesting and I think um, attractive uh, features is that we see that fuel consumption is not rising over time. Uh, this is an index in which the year 1980 is 100%, not rising over time nearly as much as is VMT, and these are different estimates of VMT by different organizations, but it's clear, whichever you prefer, that vehicle miles of travel is rising more rapidly than is the use of, of fuel, because we're becoming more fuel efficient. So that means that if we were to, let's say, in, in the year 2015, make a transition and, and um, add a VMT fee in lieu of motor fuel taxes for at least some travelers, what would happen since VMT is growing faster than uh, the use of fuel is that if, even if we made a revenue neutral switch, if we just collected exactly the same amount of money in the first year, because VMT is rising faster, within a, a, a reasonably short period of time, the VMT fee would be producing 20% more revenue than a gas tax. Uh, that's inherent in the, in, in the fact that VMT is, is rising more rapidly than, than fuel consumption. So the transition is a critical question and it's getting us um, into very complicated political debates. Paul will talk some more about that. Um, direct charging may need to be phased in to new vehicles over time, but um, new vehicles are only a small part of the fleet in any given year. And some cars are out there that are you know, 20 and 30 years old. How would we do this? How would, how would we deal with that transition technically? We may need time to, to, for a political and public acceptance to grow. Uh, privacy is the main issue that keeps coming back the public uh, and many of the media have addressed the question, well, if this is going to be in some way connected to a GPS system, um, people are going to know where I'm driving and that's not a good thing. The gas tax would be all right in the short run if Congress would, were to agree to raise it, um, even if there's a transition to a new system that's planned and that transition would take 10 or 15 years or more. 
Um, and yet, we don't see on the horizon a rise in the gas tax either. Well, RAND has, with the uh, uh, support of the National Cooperative Highway Research Program, and at the request of, the, uh, of AASHTO, the Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, been investigating short-term options, and we're now extending that study to look at ways of that, that uh, a, a large-scale trial, a national trial, might be included in the next reauthorization. So I'm going to call on Paul Sorensen now, and he's going to tell us um, first about the findings of the short-term study and a little bit about the work that's being done in the continuing study. Paul. Uh, thanks very much, Marty. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to share with you today some of the findings from the recent study uh, that we did uh, looking at various options for implementing VMT fees that might be pursued in the near term. Um, as Marty mentioned, VMT fees are viewed as a very promising uh, long-term replacement for fuel taxes. Uh, he just showed they would provide a more stable revenue source going forward, and this is largely tied to the fact that they're not reliant on increased fuel consumption. Um, I think as we look longer term, another reason why a lot of people are excited about them is you can actually structure the fee in such a way that you can help reduce traffic congestion, help reduce emissions, uh, help reduce road wear, certain problems that are very challenging to find other solutions to. Um, Switching to a VMT fee system is likely to prove quite complex, and as a result, most people who've looked at the issue assume that it would take at least 10 to 15 years uh, to make such a transition. But at the same time, we face very pressing revenue challenges now. So what we were asked to do in the study was uh, explore whether there are options that we could pursue much more quickly, such as within the next five years or so. Uh, as a brief preview of our findings, we ended up identifying nine different ways that you could implement VMT fees, and three of these emerged as the most promising. Um, now, while the options have, uh, each has their own unique uh, advantages and limitations, it's also the case that there are still a number of significant uncertainties that would make it very, very difficult at this time to select the most cost-effective option for us to pursue. Uh, and so for this reason, we suggested that the upcoming uh, authorization may provide the opportunity to fund a set of activities that could help resolve some of these uncertainties and thereby set the stage for potential uh, implementation beginning as early as 2015. So in today's briefing, I'm going to comment very briefly on uh, some of the background research that we did for this study. Then I'll introduce the nine different options that we looked at and discuss a little bit about how they compare in terms of strengths and limitations. Uh, and then finally set forth some of the recommendations that we offered in terms of activities that would help uh, move forward in progressing towards a transition to VMT fees. Uh, in, in the area of background research, we be began by looking at motivations, uh, and, and as, as, as we've said, um, clearly one motivation is to either raise or at least preserve transportation funding, and with, uh, with the deficits that we're now facing in transportation funding, this is uh, a very important motivation that's stimulating discussion now. Uh, but it's also the case, looking longer term, uh, the, the strategic potential to use VMT fees to address these other types of problems uh, becomes very important. The ability, for example, to increase the price per mile if you're traveling during congested conditions to help reduce congestion, or increase the uh, price per mile for the most polluting vehicles to help reduce emissions. Um, 
precisely because some of these advantages, the idea of VMT fees or mileage-based uh, use charges have received a lot of attention uh, of, uh, in, in the last 10 years or so. Here in the U.S., we've had several uh, prominent trials that have looked at ways to implement VMT fees. Uh, the Dutch are moving forward uh, fairly rapidly towards the implementation at full scale of such a program. Uh, there's also been a number of automated weight distance truck tolls, which are similar in concept in Europe. Uh, and then finally, as uh, we see the emergence of pay-as-you-drive insurance, where an insurance rate is based on miles of travel, that's, uh, those programs are also starting to use some of the same types of technologies that might be used to implement VMT fees. Um, fairly early on in the study, we recognized that some of the options, at least, would require a considerable level of support from states, even to implement uh, uh, what would be a national program. So we wanted to get their perspectives. Uh, broadly, what we found is the states are quite interested in the revenue potential of VMT fees, uh, and in particular, how they might piggyback off such a system to implement their own VMT fees. Um, at the same time, they would prefer an optional rather than mandatory participation. Uh, that is, states that are not interested uh, in implementing their own VMT fees do not want to be asked to expend considerable effort to implement a program on the federal government's behalf. Uh, and then finally, they do see uh, value in federal leadership on this, and the concern here uh, is that if states develop these systems independently, they may not interoperate very well with one another. Uh, and so if there's some federal leadership to uh, develop a framework for doing this, there's a much greater chance that we can get a system that works for as travelers pass from one state to another. Uh, so let's turn now to the specific options that we identified. Uh, it's, it's helpful to first note that when you're designing such a system and you look at it at the broadest level, there's at least three things that you need to do. You need to be able to meter road use, that is, say how far you've driven and possibly where and when. Uh, you need to provide a way to issue a bill and collect payment. And then finally, you need to be able to prevent evasion. So each of the options that we look at uh, addresses these in, in one way or another. Um, so the first three options that we looked at all involve the use of an odometer. And uh, generally in this case, the odometer reading would be used as a basis of, of a mileage fee, and that would be collected as part of a state's vehicle registration process. Uh, in the first, it would be a self-report. That is, a, a driver would just write down how many miles are in their car, and a, and a bill would be issued. Uh, in the second option, drivers would be required to bring their vehicle in for a manual inspection of the odometer uh, for each time the car is registered. Uh, and then the third, the driver would have the option of either paying an assumed mileage rate that might be based on the vehicle type and age, uh, or if they believe they could save money by actually paying for the actual odometer reading, they could instead choose to bring it in and have it read each year. Uh, the next option is based on estimating mileage uh, on the basis of a vehicle's fuel economy and the amount of fuel purchased. So here each vehicle would have some type of an uh, automated vehicle identifier, possibly an RFID tag, that would have its make and its fuel economy information. Uh, and when you pay, uh, when you would go to purchase fuel, there would be a card reader at the fuel pump that would read that information and, and multiply the fuel economy by the number of gallons per, uh, purchased uh, as sort of a, a rough estimate of the likely mileage that would result from that purchase. Um, and then when those fees are added, the, the fuel taxes would be correspondingly subtracted. The next four options all involve the installation of some type of a more sophisticated device in the vehicle 
that would calculate mileage uh, at varying levels of specificity. Uh, in the first, you would have a device that would essentially connect to the onboard diagnostics port, uh, which is provided in cars uh, built in 1996 or later. Uh, this provides information about a vehicle's speed, which you can integrate over time to get a good estimate of mileage. Um, the second option would add cellular communications to the device. Uh, and while cellular communications could provide a way to transmit billing information, the, the purpose here is actually to use it for location information. That is, the cellular device can look for the closest cell phone tower and use that to get, at a rough level, the jurisdiction or the area in which the travel is occurring. So you can get some information about location of travel. Um, with the third option, you add GPS to determine uh, the location information. And actually, that's both for the third and fourth options. Uh, the distinction that we made is, depending on how you can configure, configure the device, you can have the GPS track uh, location at a rough scale by jurisdiction or by area, or you can uh, gear it to actually tra uh, track specific route of travel. Uh, and those provide different options in terms of some of the policies that you might pursue. Uh, then the last option we looked at is RFID tolling, and this is uh, comparable to FastPass or EasyPass, the systems where you have a transponder that communicates with the entries uh, and issues tolls for use of specific routes. Uh, so clearly we're not going to put gantries up on every road throughout the United States. So this is really an option that is about uh, charging for mileage on the most heavily traveled routes, not on, on all roads. Um, but that was one other possibility that we considered. Um, so how do these options compare? We needed to develop a framework uh, to try to determine which appear uh, most promising. Um, one of the first things we looked at is what kind of policy options could you support uh, under these various implementation schemes? That is, what are the kinds of things that you might want to do with VMT fees and does the approach allow that or not? So beyond simply raising revenue, you may want to apportion that revenue accurately based on where travel occurred. Um, you may want to try and reduce, set the fees to reduce traffic congestion or to reduce emissions or to reduce road wear. Now depending on which of those you're interested in, you may need to know more than simply the total amount of miles traveled. You may need to have some information about the vehicle characteristics. Uh, you may need to know the location of travel. Uh, possibly just by jurisdiction, but maybe a smaller geographic area or even by specific route of travel. And you may need to know the time of travel. So the bullets in this chart indicate which metering capabilities you would need to pursue those alternate policy goals. Now, beyond simply looking at what are the capabilities of the system, there's a lot of other issues that become important if, as you're deciding what direction you might go. How much does it cost? There's a variety of cost elements. Uh, how well will it work when you scale it up to a full system and you try to address all the kinds of vehicles that you would need to be including within the charging framework? Uh, institutionally and legally, how difficult would it be per to pursue? And then what uh, level of user acceptance uh, or user hostility might it face? And, and clearly, as Marty mentioned, the, the issue of privacy is, is going to be a big one in that latter category. Um, so we tried to look at each of the different options according to those criteria. And this first shows uh, what the different policy goals that could be supported by the different implementation options are. And what you can see is uh, the, the goal of reducing emissions for which you basically need to know vehicle characteristics. You could approach that goal with any of the options that we looked at. But as you 
uh, start to be interested in apportioning revenue accurately by location of travel or in re reducing traffic congestion or reducing uh, road wear, you have progressively fewer options that would support those, uh, those specific goals. Um, in terms of the other criteria that we looked at, uh, basically all of the options face at least some, uh, some limitations. Um, some of the most important that emerged were some are difficult to enforce, um, some would require uh, a significant state role, and from the perspective of our study that was asking uh, what we might do for a national system, the requirement of a sig significant state role was considered a negative. Um, some would place a fairly significant burden on users above and beyond what they face in paying fuel taxes. Uh, some introduce uh, significant privacy concerns. Uh, others have a very high per vehicle cost or, or likely very high collection and operating costs. So taking that all into consideration, our goal was to suggest those options that appear most promising. We ended up using five criteria for making this judgment. Uh, first, given that our goal was to look at VMT fee options, we suggested uh, that we should only look at those options that really can price all miles of travel, not just mileage on a, a subset of the road network. Um, we also looked at the trade-off between cost and metering capabilities, and specifically we said that if an option is going to cost a lot, it should also be fairly flexible in terms of the types of pricing that it could support, which would enable uh, the system to bring in more revenue to offset that higher cost. Um, ability to enforce uh, was the third criteria we looked at. Uh, minimal required state support and finally minimal uh, burden on users. Um, now based on applying those criteria, three options emerged to us as most promising and they fall uh, on a continuum of, uh, in terms of their cost and their metering capabilities. At the low end of, or the lower end of cost and, and uh, flexibility is the option of uh, estimating mileage based on fuel consumption and fuel economy. Uh, and then at the higher end uh, are the devices that you would install in a vehicle that either rely on uh, an OBD connection with cellular communications to get a rough estimate of location or the use of GPS to get finer estimates of locations. And where we might pursue along this uh, spectrum really does depend on what policy goals we would like to approach through a VMT fee system, and, and we really don't have any national consensus on that uh, right now. Some of the other options that we looked at face crucial limitations from the perspective of a national system of VMT fees. Uh, the self-reported odometer was simply judged as being very difficult, uh, perhaps impossible to enforce uh, well. Um, the mandatory or optional odometer readings that would need to be conducted by the states, that would uh, pose a significant burden, particularly to states that don't currently conduct uh, vehicle inspections, and that's about 15 out of the 50 states. Uh, and would also uh, raise the burden for users. Uh, the RFID t uh, tolling is a, is a more interesting case. You could actually make an interesting argument that this would be a good direction to pursue uh, in the sense that you could raise a lot of revenue on the routes that are most heavily traveled. Um, but it is not a VMT fee, as I mentioned, because you can't capture all mileage, so we did not consider that further. One of the reasons that we did even discuss it in the report, though, is the recognition that if you have a system that either has an RFID tag or some type of 
uh, in vehicle equipment, you can actually use RFID tolling to augment the capabilities of that system. Uh, that is, if you have a system that's just tracking location by jurisdiction, but you wanted to implement some facility-specific tolls, you could, up, could put up gantries along those facilities that could communicate with the device that you have in the vehicle. So that, uh, there's a possible role for RFID tolling in that sense uh, within the context of our study. Um, so though those options emerge to us as the most promising, as I mentioned, there are considerable uncertainties that would make it hard to choose uh, among those to, to pick the most uh, cost-effective option. Uh, there, we don't have any consensus on what the policy goals we want to pursue are and in turn what metering capabilities the system really needs to support. Uh, we don't know nearly enough yet, I think, about the cost of in-vehicle equipment if you manufacture it at scale or the cost of certain collection options. Uh, and then finally, uh, I think more work needs to be done in developing cost-effective enforcement strategies for any uh, system that is going to have an in-vehicle device, specifically ways uh, to make sure that it's not being disabled or tampered with that don't require having that in device ex uh, inspected, say, every year. So uh, we need to do a little bit more about that. Um, so with that in mind, we looked at activities that we might fund in the next transportation reauthorization, and we came up with five sets of activities. Uh, first is planning. There's, uh, we, we need some, uh, some logical center to spearhead this effort as we move forward uh, and make some of these decisions about which we, we currently have no consensus. Uh, there's a number of analytic studies that would be helpful, particularly ones that could uh, provide better estimates of how much the system would cost to put in place and operate. Um, several of the technical approaches could benefit from a little additional uh, research and development funding. Um, and then it would be very helpful, although there have been some smaller scale trials to date in the U.S., it would be very helpful to pursue much uh, larger scale trials than we've done to date, uh, which would start to get at some of the issues about how these performance scale. Uh, and also start to build uh, greater familiarity with this approach. Uh, and then finally, linked to that last one, uh, it's pretty clear that there's not uh, a significant public knowledge of the fact that fuel taxes are in trouble or what the motivations <coughs> for shifting to VMT fees would be. So continued or, or, or additional uh, education outreach efforts would be very helpful. Uh, and with that in mind, we're actually doing, as Marty mentioned, some follow-on work right now, and we're specifically looking at the question of what types of trials might be helpful to fund in the next uh, reauthorization. And we're asking questions such as uh, how the trials might be organized, how large they should be, how much they're likely to cost, uh, who would be the logical parties to conduct the trials at, at a detailed level, uh, and then what types of technical configurations and other issues should be explored within those trials. Uh, so with that, I'll close. I'll mention um, that the, this slide shows the URL for the report if anybody uh, does not have that and is interested in downloading it. Uh, and I'll look forward to your questions in uh, a few minutes from now after the discussants have had their chance to comment. Thank you very much, Paul. And, and now we're going to hear from uh, Paul Schmidt and then Jim Timon. And while Paul comes to the microphone, I just mentioned briefly that one of the other authors of the study, Lisa Ecola, is, is present today. I'd like to make sure that you understand that, we, that, that it was a team effort and, and one of the other authors is present as well. So thank you. Thanks, Marty and Paul. Uh, I think the, uh, the study that you did is very important because it very well sets out the issue that we face that uh, we can't uh, maintain uh, our system with the gas tax and we need to move to, to a new system. 
And so we, we all sort of understand the issue, and it's very clear that we do need to move the ball forward. Um, Senator Carper, my boss, feels that it's important that we start that process uh, uh, now. We don't just wait for the next transportation bill, and we've urged uh, the DOT to use their existing funding and authority to begin to look at these issues. Uh, it's going to be difficult uh, to make, well, I think it's fair to say that it's probably impossible that we will transition to a new system in this next transportation bill. I think it's going to be even difficult to set up uh, a national vision uh, in the next transportation bill for what that new system will be. But we do need to uh, move the ball forward, and I certainly uh, support um, Rand's suggestions on uh, pilot programs, more planning, more R&D, et cetera. Um, I think one of the things that we should focus on is pilot programs across uh, state boundaries, multi-state, and also dealing with urban and rural settings, um, and, and so, so that we can understand how the system would work uh, if, uh, if it was implemented, or when it's implemented, I should say. Um, I think it's also important that we narrow some of the uh, technology options, and so that in our, in our pilot programs, we have a focus of, of a couple of different technologies that uh, are possible, and Rand has obviously talked about that, um, and, and so it would certainly be the correct um, situation in, in the authorization bill to have a few pilot programs designated with funding and uh, designated policy, I'm sorry, designated technology options uh, to do that. Uh, education and, and concerns from consumers is obviously a very big deal. You know, we, we hear lots up here in Congress about privacy concerns. Uh, you, you know, I think uh, the pilot programs can help uh, deal with some of those concerns. I think also refocusing and reforming our transportation system in, in general to uh, convince uh, Americans that uh, that uh, the transportation dollars, their existing transportation dollars are being better spent uh, is, is another way to show them uh, why we need new revenue and why we need to move to this new system. But obviously, uh, education is going to be a huge issue. And it's not clear yet who, who the best person is or, the, the, you know, the best um, entity is to do that, whether it's the federal government, states, nonprofits, et cetera. Um, but it's clear that there needs to be a lot of work there. Um, so. Uh, in, in the Senate bill, when we get to a transportation bill, um, uh, Senator Carper is certainly going to be urging for uh, more money for USDOT to be focusing on R&D and uh, larger, uh, uh, more expensive pilot programs and uh, to, to continue to look at this issue so that hopefully um, maybe in the next transportation bill we can set that national vision for where we want to go. As uh the first three speakers have uh, kind of pointed out we're in an um, interesting situation here over the next, um, at least the next couple of years, and, and trying to chart out a, a vision for where we need to go with the next uh, or with the future of service transportation financing. Uh, right now, we're operating under this 30 day extension that'll get us through the end of the month, uh, and hopefully, the Senate will pick up the uh, House amended version of the jobs bill and uh, we'll have a one-year extension that takes us through uh, the end of the calendar year. Uh, hopefully that'll give us enough time for the Senate to put a bill together and, uh, and, and provide us with something, and for the administration. Uh, you know, Congressman, or Chairman Overstar, uh, is really the only one out there with a comprehensive uh, bill that he's, that we've introduced, or that we've marked up through subcommittee that kind of lays out uh, a direction for where he'd like to see the surface transportations go over the next six years and um, you know I think that this calendar year extension hopefully gives people 
the time that they need to put together something that uh, on both the Senate side and, and for the administration so that we can uh, start to push forward on, on where we're going to go on these things. With regards to the future of financing, uh, you know, again, I think uh, the reports that, that Miranda's put out here are, are going to be helpful to the discussion moving forward. Uh, Congressman Micah, who I work for, is, is, uh, has had a saying over the past three, three and a half years is that uh, the gas tax is becoming more and more obsolete every day. And I think that you saw that in, in the presentations today. So we're starting to look at a lot of different options to move forward. Uh, VMT obviously is, uh, from an economist's perspective, uh, a great idea to push forward. Uh, you, you take a, a good that is often seen as free and you're able to assign a price to it and uh, in some cases vary that price according to demand, which uh, on paper looks great, but then we have all these challenges that were laid out uh, in these presentations that I think that we are going to need to tackle over the next few years. The idea of doing uh, pilot programs uh, I think, again, is great. Safety Lou had some uh, money in there for two sets of pilot programs, one in Oregon, uh, which has wrapped up, and then another one uh, that's being conducted currently over a, a variety of, of jurisdictions um, across the country. And I think as we start to look at that, the data from, from those pilot programs, it'll help us lay out what direction we want to move forward in the next bill. Uh, but we are going to deal with a lot of problems. Uh, Congressman Micah did some interviews this past August when he went back down to the district for the August recess and uh, pushed forward the idea of, of transitioning to a VMT um, concept over the next 10 years or so. And the public really did not react very well to that. Uh, and I think that goes in part with what Paul was saying about education. I think we need to reach out to folks and say, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily about us being able to track you wherever you go, because I think that's the knee-jerk reaction for most people. Uh, it's more about uh, being able to adequately charge users of a system for um, what they're using that, that uh, facility for. Uh, so I think that over the next, uh, in the next reauthorization bill, we're going to have to do something that, that pushes us forward. We're going to have to uh, help identify the technologies that are, are most viable and the types of systems, and I think that uh, the authorizers will get to that once we put together the next authorization bill. But in the short term, you know, we've talked a little bit about what we need to do until VMT becomes viable, if that's the direction that people choose. Uh, increasing the gas tax is something that a lot of people have talked about, but it's also very difficult to do politically. Uh, it's not just members of Congress who are averse to it, uh, and they are on both sides of the aisle. Uh, but it's also the White House. Uh, the gas tax has never been increased without using the, uh, without the support of the president. And I think that uh, using increasing the gas tax as an option in the short run is not going to happen until the White House gets behind it as a viable option. Uh, and it's also encountered some resistance at state and local level as well. So uh, this isn't just a uh, Congress is afraid of uh, of doing the right thing politically. Uh, it's also, uh, there seems to be an aversion to it in the public and uh, at all levels of government. I think folks are having a hard time uh, dealing with how to fund transportation issues as we move forward. Uh, general fund is obviously uh, the thing that everybody defaults to, but I think that people are hesitant to do that because they don't want to lose the connection between uh, the users and the programs, the surface transportation programs. Uh, and as we continue to dip into the general fund to fund these programs, it becomes 
um, more and more difficult for us to justify that as we collect revenue for uh, from the gas tax or eventually from a VMT system that we want to use that and for only transportation purposes. Uh, another option that folks are looking at is, is kind of refocusing what gas tax revenues are used for. Uh, right now, uh, we do start, we're starting to spread that money across a lot of different areas that aren't necessarily uh, provide direct benefits to highway users. Uh, obviously, uh, going back uh, a very long time, we've used a portion of the gas tax revenue for transit. And I think you, it's easy to draw that connection for a lot of drivers as you take more vehicles off the road. Uh, you can uh, see a reduction in congestion for the folks that do pay the gas tax. Uh, but as we start to transition into uh, other types of things, such as um, the livability initiatives that the administration is pushing forward, I think that you start to lose that direct connection with uh, the payer, the, user, the users that are paying that fee. Uh, so I think that we need to start looking maybe at the general fund to support some of these activities that are not directly related to uh, these, uh, the users of these systems uh, that are paying the gas tax. So I think those are some of the things that we're going to be dealing with over the next uh, calendar year, hopefully, and that we can get something done before December 30th of next year. And uh, with that, I'll close. And Thank you very much. This concludes the recorded portion of today's presentation. I want to thank all of the panelists for joining me and, and for, for providing those uh, insightful remarks. And we're going to open up for general questions and, and comments and discussion. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.